Good morning, Midland Free. I thought the whole time through that whole thing for a transition, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm like, how am I going to do this? I don't know. That was cool, right? Amen. That's all I got. Good job, worship dancers. Thank you. Hey, my name is Jeremy. Welcome here. We're glad you're worshiping with us together at Midland Free. If it's your first time to our church, or if you can't remember last week, what we've been doing is this. We've been working through the seven churches of Revelation. You've probably seen a candlestick with uh, seven lights on it. That's symbolic of the light that is being displayed in these churches. And some of them are flickering, and some of them are almost totally out. Some are burning more brightly than others. Last week, we looked at a church that... We could say the people of the plain, or the rain in Spain falls mostly on the plain. These people lived on the plain, and as a result, they got conquered all the time. And does anyone remember how that influenced them by chance? That made them compromise all the time. Exactly right. They were wishy-washy. They were disloyal. So the people of the plain were disloyal, whereas today we're going to the people of the pedestal, And instead of disloyal, they're nearly dead. We are moving from Thyatira to Sardis. And I know those are weird names. We don't have to remember all of that. Maybe you could remember this. I've been playing with letters this morning. Here's another one. The sleepy citizens of Sardis, of the citadel of Sardis. See if you can say that five times fast. Today we're talking to these sleepy citizens of the citadel of Sardis. Here's the thing. I think it's easy to condemn these churches, of course, because God clearly points out what they're doing wrong. Yet when we honestly look at ourselves and we look at them, we see many of the same characteristics. The church last week and many of the previous churches were experiencing persecution. And we looked at the fact that in the future, it seems more and more likely that we as a church would. Yet the reality is, in our current setting, our persecution really isn't that bad. What we may experience is a little discomfort or perhaps some political incorrectness. The threat is not to our lives, safety, family, or well-being. That said, it makes us pretty comfortable in our Christianity, which I think identifies us more closely with the church we're looking at today than any of the churches yet until this point. And... It's an interesting thing for me to consider is is this concept of comfort. I know for a fact, I think it's true, that we all want to be comfortable. When I was doing my premarital counseling, like mine, for me and my wife, 17 years ago, I remember the preacher looking at us and talking about differences, and he said, one of the first things he said to me is, Jeremy, I see that you dress for comfort. Well, I guess so. What are you saying? (laughs) And then I married my wife and I found out that that was true because she said, you know, when you shop for clothes, the way you shop is like this. You walk through the aisles and you're like feeling, you're like, oh, there's something that feels good. You're not thinking, oh, does this match or is that whatever? And, you know, you're looking at me now thinking, okay, so what's that mean? What that means is my wife picked my shirt and my pants, but I picked the shoes. So we compromise. And they were close enough, right? Blue, I got there. But the thing is, is we all like comfort, whether it's our shoes or our clothes or our car or our house or maybe even our career. A lot of the decisions we make are influenced by our desire for comfort. 
And I would say this before you think I'm going to just jump on the soapbox and go off on that. The reality is I think comfort is actually a good thing. Comfort in and of itself isn't a sin. In fact, when we look at God, he often calls himself the God of comfort. He wants to comfort us in all of our sorrow, pain, and affliction. He doesn't leave us without a shepherd or a comforter. Instead, he gives us the Holy Spirit, who is our parakaleo, or our called alongside comforter. He gives us heaven as an eternal home, which will be a comfort to us as well, that we will no longer struggle with all the stuff that we struggle with now. So comfort is a good thing. God has promised to us eternal comfort, peace, and prosperity. The problem is this. Here's the issue then. So comfort is good. But what happens is the way the devil twists that good desire, which is what he does to all of our good desires, whether it's sex or food or money or whatever, the way he twists it or tweaks it just a little is this. Is our desire for earthly comfort, things that help me temporarily here and now, Eventually, they begin to supplant or become more weighty than my pursuit of heavenly comfort. When my desire for things that make things better now is more heavy than my desire for the future, then I begin a slow downward slide to the descent of spiritual apathy. The message then to us, to we who are relatively comfortable, despite our suffering, indeed we have suffering, pain, sickness, death, etc., we have that. But to us who have homes, who have cars, who have clothes, the message is this, to wake up. That essentially we need to wake up and be very intentional about where we find our comfort, and that is in Christ. Yes, we can find it in other places, but ultimately the only thing that will permanently work is in Jesus himself. And so, Revelation chapter 3, to the sleepy citizens of the citadel of Sardis, wake up. Wake up. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, there's six verses to this church today. And they say this. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Notice that church. That's huge. I'm not even going to talk about it in this text. But this is the church that all the other churches looked literally and metaphorically up to. This is the church that had the conference. This is the church that had the speakers. This is the church that had the outreach events. This is the church that had the best budget, best worship, best everything. They are awesome. We want to be like them. And Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive, but actually you're already dead. No one else knows it. Wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his or her name from the book of life. 
I will confess her name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to give you a few pictures this morning, um, and they're going to be a little bit historical, but I promise this is not just for the sake of a history lesson. This is good stuff. Really, the interest here is in the history. You will not get this text unless you see this situation. And so the first picture I have is this. This is the picture of what's called the Acropolis at Sardis. So if you look way up there on the tippy-tippy top, that's this ancient fortress. So what's happened is because it's sloping down downward, there's a lot of erosion. But originally, this spot, which still has the ancient ruins and all that, and I'll show them to you in just a minute. This spot on three sides had 1,500-foot cliffs. That is very significant for the understanding of the spiritual application of this passage. Why do I tell you that? Because it's virtually impregnable. You can't, in that day, just walk up with your battering ram 1,500 feet of sheer cliffs. If you're going to attack the city, it's going to look something like this next slide, like this. It was said that in ancient Sardis, a child could protect the city. It really wasn't that hard. Three sides, sheer cliff, one side, steep slope, heavily fortified. They could go to sleep at night, leave one man at the door, and know that if we see anything coming, we can blow them away from miles out. It's no big thing. As a result, what happened is these people became very comfortable. Do you hear that, church? They became very comfortable in their spot. Remember, the previous church was out in the plain, and so they knew when the enemy's coming... We're dead meat. They're just going to sweep in, take us out. And we need to be able to say, I pledge allegiance to Caesar. Or I pledge allegiance to Asia. Or I pledge allegiance to Egypt or whoever comes in. That's my new boss. So they're struggling with compromise. This church is different. They've never been compromised. They're like, we got this. No big thing. Are you kidding me? They can't come get us. And as a result, you've probably heard Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. One of the most important verses in the Bible, we've got to remember, anything you do and think you do well, think about that too. Here it is, Sardis, again, another picture. Here's what happened. So in 546 B.C., one of the kings got so confident that he thought, you know, this guy... Cyrus, the great, this great Persian emperor, I'm going to take him out. Me and my cavalry, we're going to go down there. We're going to get him, and I'm going to enjoy peace and prosperity as I continue to live at the top of the mountain. And so he goes after Cyrus, and Cyrus beats him back, and he falls back to his citadel or his fortress. By the way, Acropolis, it seems like a fancy word. Police, we have that word today, right? We spell it a bit different, but it's for the people who guard the city. Police is just the ancient Greek word for city. So the police are like the keepers of the city. And then Acropolis is like summit or top or mount. So you basically got uh, um, the the fortress or citadel. It's like a fortress on top of the city that's on top of the mountain. That's what Acropolis is. So we'll use that word a lot. It's basically the fortress on top of the mountain. So here's this ancient fortress on top of the mountain. And the guy retreats back to his spot. You can show that picture again, please. We'll just keep it up there for a minute. The guy retreats back to his spot, 
And he's hanging out and he's taking a break and he's, you know, refreshing himself. But instead of going back home, Cyrus decides to pursue him. And of course, he does what all ancient um, armies do is they siege the city. So they surround it and they think eventually the city's going to be starved out or they're going to go in and get them and then it'll be theirs. But with these huge cliffs, they're still not concerned. However, during the middle of the night, one guy gets an idea. He's like, you know what? I think I can climb that 1,500-foot cliff. Why not? You know, American Ninja Warrior, ancient Greek attacker, whatever. We'll give it a shot. And so he does. He and a few other guys actually make it up. It's like Mission Impossible. They're wedged between this tiny spot in the air duct or whatever. It's not an air duct, of course. But he finds a little crevice and climbs all the way up opens the gate, Cyrus's army walks in unopposed because there's like very few people guarding it at the time and conquers the city. Wake up! <laughs> They're asleep. They're literally asleep and their own pride went before their destruction. Here's the irony of this passage. These people who are living as a church in this area that was conquered because they fell asleep, the Holy Spirit of God is saying to them, wake up! You guys are falling asleep spiritually just like you did in 500 BC. And you would think, you know how people are, right? You think, oh, well, we got that figured out. That'll never happen again. Actually, it does. Same thing 300 years later in 214 BC, a guy by the name of Lagaros, not Legolos, but Lagaros, does the same thing. He ascends the walls, this Cretan mountain climber, and destroys the city again. So it's just so ironic because here are these people living in this citadel, this fortress, this acropolis on the top of the mountain. They think they're all good. And really, they're all not. And there's the great danger, church. We think we're all good, but we're all not. Just because we have our class, just because we have our clothes, just because everything seems to be in order, even the candles in our home, it's not okay. We need to wake up. Robert Mounts says it like this, as in history, so too in life, to consider oneself secure and fail to remain alert courts disaster. You've probably driven down the road, and if you read bumper stickers, I don't know if you do or not, um, some of them you should read, some of them you shouldn't. But here's one that always makes me scratch my head. You've probably seen it. It's the bumper, go ahead and raise your hand if you have. The bumper sticker coexists. Have you seen that one? Coexist one, they put all the different religious signs and they're sort of saying, you know, just everybody be one big happy family. We all have our own different things, like different languages, different cultures, different religions. It's no big thing, just coexist. I think that was sort of the philosophy of this area. Here's here's my reason for saying that. Here's the temple of Artemis. So, so here's a Greek fertility goddess. Here's a picture of one thing. So, so on one corner, they've got the Temple of Artemis. Here's some columns that look up into the uh, Acropolis that's kind of pretty. And they're like, oh, this is a nice place to hang out and have a picnic down by the Tridge or whatever. So Temple of Acar- uh, Artemis is over there. The Tridge is over here. Oh, and here's our gymnasium, our community center. This is another Greek thing. And on the next corner, you also have the synagogue, the Jewish house of worship and prayer. So we've got our Jews, and we've got our pagans, and we've got our 
whatevers, and everybody on that bumper sticker are represented somewhere, and the Christians have a church as well. So we're all just going to peacefully coexist, try not to rock the boat, don't say anything that would offend anyone, we'll all get along, and it'll all be okay, just lean back and enjoy the comforts you have at the top of your hill. Mounts again says this is the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. This is what Satan wants you to do today. Sit back, relax, don't say anything, don't bring it up, stay cool, be quiet. Problem is that people become so comfortable with the culture around them that they were not even being persecuted. And as a result, they were actually in danger of going extinct. It's funny, isn't it? We think the churches that are being persecuted are the lights that are going to be stomped out. But the reality is the persecuted churches are the lights that are glowing the most brightly. And it's the ones that are becoming comfortable that aren't burning near so bright. They just slowly dim and no one really notices. And eventually they're gone. The problem is this, when we look at this passage, we see that when temporary comfort becomes the thing, we're in big trouble. We're in danger. I called it the thing because I I experimented with a couple different words. I'm like, when temporary comfort becomes our driver or our decision maker, our determining factor, our main thing, and I was thinking, yeah, you know, as I talk about that, I doubt many of us are going to say, oh yeah, temporary comfort is my main thing. Probably none of us would say it's our main thing, but we might say it's a thing, like something we are interested in. It's not my priority, but it's there, you know, it plays in. The reality is we probably don't realize how much it actually plays in. Let me give you some examples, and this is a bit risky for me. Um, I'm going to use some examples that at first I think you'll probably say, okay, yeah, I get that one. But on the last one, I'm taking a bit of a risk, but I'm asking you to hear me out. Because I think what happens is we get in our culture, and just like them, we just suck it in. We're like, oh yeah, cool, everybody does that, no big thing. And we don't specifically think about the implications or the next steps down the line, because the thing itself isn't so bad. Like I said last week, Satan's not going to come and say, hey, He probably won't. Maybe sometimes he does. Murder your best friend. It doesn't start there. It starts with an argument, disagreement, substance abuse, hatred, depression. You know, it goes, goes, goes. And then eventually that rage turns to wrath, which destroys. The process here of spiritual death doesn't happen like overnight. It's this slow descent to apathy, to destruction. So let me give you some examples. This morning, I'm feeling kind of, ugh, I've got a cold, right? So I get up, what do I need? I need coffee, man. (laughs) I need it bad in a bad way. So I'm going after caffeine. And then after a little while, I'm going to go home, and I might be kind of feeling the post-preach blues, and I'm like, all right, now I need a quick pick-me-up. I've already had my caffeine. What's next? Chocolate. (laughs) I need a little bit of chocolate, amen? (laughs) All right, chocolate comes next. And then probably some aspirin, you know, and depending on where you are in the spectrum, I don't need to spend any money, but I'm not buying wine. But some people will buy a, you know, they're going to use alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, 
any quick boost or anything to help me feel better because I'm hurting, you know, like my back hurts, my feet hurt, my voice is tired, I got a headache, it's time, I'm going there. And it's really not a big thing. Even in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, hey, take a little wine for your stomach. When you get a sour stomach, take some medicine. Be careful. Steward your body. And it's right to steward our body. See, there's nothing wrong with that. Good health is important. We're Christians. We need to serve God. Steward your body. But the problem is when that is, becomes the thing, and it's the first thing we go to, I feel bad, therefore I need this. That's where it becomes an issue. Even if you're not a substance abuse person, you're still running first somewhere else other than to Jesus. Now, it's true, it helps your body, but the thing is, is when you build it into your mind that the thing that's going to make me feel better is X, Y, Z, the reality is what we need is not a little aspirin or Tylenol or short-term buzz, but what we in fact need is an eternal fix. We need the resurrection and redemption of our new bodies. As these bodies are wasting away and going to the grave, we need to look to the resurrected Christ and say, that's where it is. My joy comes from the future, not from my short-term fix now. And all those things are short-term fixes. They may help a little. They may be, in fact, the right thing. You may need to take that aspirin so you don't grump at your wife. You know, don't sin more by abstinence. But think about where you're going first. Am I first going to these things to make me feel better or am I first going to Jesus to help me feel better? There's a difference there and it's subtle, but we don't notice it, but it's real. So first of all, think about your short-term fixes. Another example could be money. Oh, preacher's going to talk about money again. Hey, look, I don't even have to stretch for examples. Look at the mega millions. How many people thought, you don't have to, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but how many people thought, there's my fix? There it is. Man, I need a new roof, a new garage door, a sprinkler system, carpet on the stairs. The bathroom walls are moldy. The Mega millions, man. Fix. New car every year the rest of my life. What am I worried about? There's my fix. I just need a little more money. If I had more money, all my problems would be solved. You felt that way? I have... At times, I'm a middle-aged guy, I got kids and mortgage, everything else. I'm thinking, really the solution here is money. That's the main thing. I need that more than anything else right now. I don't need to be more healthy. I'm pretty healthy. I don't need that more than you know other stuff. I just need some... Why are you thinking that way? Well, because in our culture, the way it works is you go to the mechanic and he fixes it for money. You know, your problem gets fixed for money. And it's so easy to go there, church. Maybe I'm the only one. Well, I don't think so. It's easy to get to the spot. You think, man, my fix is money. Indeed, we need God to provide for us. But the reality is this. If we're going to money first, we got a problem. Mega millions is something like the king of Israel where God said, okay, you people, you think the king is going to be your fix. You think he will deliver you. You have no idea what this is going to do to you. Eventually, you will beg me to take away thing you ask for. And I think that's what happens to our lottery winners too. It destroys them. I could name names this morning of people who money has absolutely ruined. Destroyed them. Take heed lest you fall. Oh, that wouldn't happen to me. Wake up. 
Wake up, man. Take heed. False fixes is the idea. Here's the idea. Here's where it gets risky for me. False fixes is the idea that you can have heaven on earth. That's a false fix. Does everybody agree that we can't have heaven on earth right now? Does everybody agree? Right? Okay. Here we go. Disney World. What is that supposed to be? It's heaven on earth. They're selling you a false utopia. Now, I understand family time and quality time is important. And it might be the right thing for your folks at the right time. Half my elders and the bosses take their kids there. I know I'm taking a risk, but I'm stepping out. Here we go. Disney World. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to go to Disney, but listen, or it's evil, but listen to what Disney is. Disney is the perfect place where nothing goes wrong. Disney is the place where everybody is always nice. It should be the church, but it's actually Disney. The streets are clean and neat. Well, there's never a pothole at Disney. There's never even a red light. There's no crime. At least they don't want you to think there is. Anyone who ever cries is always comforted and delivered by their fairy godmother. Well, of course, we all have one. Let me compare and contrast Disney for a moment. Disney can give you very clean streets, but only Jesus can give you streets of gold. Disney can prevent lots of bad stuff from coming into their parks, but Jesus is the only one who can prevent anything unclean from ever entering the city. Disney can require their employees to be kind to you, but only Jesus completely eliminates sin. When you go into that park, you still bring all your problems with you. (laughs) You may forget about them for the day, but they're waiting for you at the door. To get into Disney, all you have to do is pay. To get into heaven, you cannot pay enough. It's impossible. To get into Disney, you don't have to believe anything at all. Coexist is cool. But to get into heaven, you have to believe something very, very specific. If you pay to get into your, into Disney, then what happens is they make a profit. But on the opposite side of things, if you're going to G, if you're going to heaven, it means Jesus paid your way and you profit. Disney can make you happy for a day, but Jesus can make you happy for an ever. Jedis and fairy godmothers are fun, but they are not the fix. Only Jesus can conquer evil. Only Jesus can truly create happily ever after. The mouse loses. Jesus wins. so important for us church not to get too comfortable but to wake up and find our comfort in Christ yes comfort's helpful yes it's good it's not bad but ultimately where do you go first we have to have to have to find our comfort in Jesus here's three specific ways ready we're going to show them right now remember repent and renew remember repent and renew this is how you find your comfort find it in Christ By remembering, repenting, 
and renewing. I try my very best to be a biblical preacher and say what the Bible says, so let me show you where I got those words. Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. There are some big, bolden words in this slide. You can download them at home if you want. But basically, the commands of the passage are the commands that I'm giving you today. There's such a thing called imperatives. That's Jesus' command. What I am commanding you is not what I am commanding you, but what Christ commands you to do. The first thing I said was remember. That's verse 3. The next thing is repent. That's the end of verse 3. And then the last one is renew. I just wanted another R, so I went with renew instead of strengthen. But... That's strengthened at the beginning of verse 2. So wake up. Find your comfort in Christ. How? By remembering your Savior. Remember, remember. Don't forget. It's so easy to forget. But you have to remember that God has a plan. No, he really does. It doesn't seem like it's going your way. And you don't like the way it's going. But the reality is, even though we don't get it, we don't understand it, we have to believe it and understand and trust that even though it's taking this long, I believe That Jesus has a better way. Remember that. Don't forget it. Somebody else wants you to forget and tell you there's a shortcut. Take this direction. And you gotta remember, no, Jesus' way is better. You gotta you gotta not only remember that, you gotta believe and trust in God's power. He has the ability to do this, and he has the heart to do so. You know, it's one thing if he has the power, but it's another thing if he has a heart. It's one thing if this Almighty God he doesn't care. Or if it's another thing, if it's a super caring God, but he can't actually enforce it. But because he is all loving and all powerful, then he cares enough and he can. And you put those things together and you get a fix. But even though the fix isn't happening now, you have to believe the plan is that it eventually will. That's the rest of the book. That's Revelation. So remember, repent, believe, and finally... Oh, I was going to say repent. Remember, repent. Repent is basically repent of your false thinking. Get rid of those cheap fixes. I mean, you don't have to stop taking aspirin, but get rid of the thinking that says, I can take care of all my problems now. That all I need is. That I would only be happy if. That this would fill in the blank. That's cheapened the grace of God. The solution is not a simple fix. The solution is the blood of the eternal son. That's very expensive. And when you say something other than Jesus can fix your problem, you have cheapened the solution. The most expensive solution is not the mega millions. The most expensive solution is the only begotten son of the living God. There is nothing more valuable than that. The eternal price of sin has been paid. Don't cheapen it to think it's something else. Jesus paid. Nobody else can. Remember, repent. Repent of your cheap thinking. Renew your first love. I'm going to blitz through this because I'm basically out of time. But here's the thing. Everything I read about this renewal, it basically centers on one thing, and that's prayer. Like every revival, I mean, down through church history, pretty much historians point to the prayer that started right before that. What, what happened here? We don't really know. We can't explain it. But this little old lady in her Sunday school class of four kids started praying, and all of a sudden, the church exploded. We don't get it. I mean, we would look for a system and a process and a method, but all of a sudden, people started repenting of their sins, started loving each other, and things changed, and people started coming to Jesus. We don't get it. 
um, economically it shouldn't work or structurally it shouldn't work. But just this single humble person who dedicated themselves to prayer and all of a sudden things really changed. That's it. And so what I'm calling you to do now to renew yourselves is simply to pray. Now, you say, oh, that's kind of nebulous. I want to be very specific. Let me give you some specific ways. Number one is the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6. You can write that down. Matthew 6. M-A-T-T 6. Write it down. Look it up. Here's a structure of something that you can pray. And you're like, okay, I don't know how to pray. Just read those words. You just pray. Then, if you want to expand on that, on our website, if you go to midlandfree.org, mefchurch.org, just type in Midland Evangelical Free Church, you'll find us. Go to the resources, and then under resources, you go to teaching seminar, and then scroll down to the bottom of the page, and you've got like two plus hours, three different sessions of me going step by step through the Lord's Prayer, showing you how to use this to supplement your prayer life. That resource is available to you. Here's another one. If you download the slides today, you'll see, um, I think we have a slide of Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Do we have that slide? Yeah. So you can go to Ephesians chapter 1. So Matthew chapter 6 or Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great place for personal worship. Do this. Watch. Ready? Here we go. You read the verse. You say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Dear God, start with that. Dear Father, thank you for blessing me in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you for choosing me to be in him even before the foundation of the world. I don't know why you do that, but before I was even a thought in my parents' mind, you chose me. Thank you. God, help me to be holy and blameless just like you have called me to be before you. Amen. Was that a good prayer? I think so, not because it was awesome. I did awesome. I just put my name in the blanks. I cut out a few words and I put me in. So all you have to do, Ephesians chapter 1. It's excellent for personal worship. Here's another example. If you go to the website, Desiring God, just type in Desiring God. They've got a whole bucket load of stuff on prayer. If you want resources, there it is. If you want a book, you can go today straight to the very back of our thing, and there should be a table put out, if not already, should be eventually put out where it has all of Tim Keller, a bunch of Tim Keller stuff. He's got a book on prayer. It's simply called Prayer. Anything by Tim Keller is good, but if you want to learn to pray, read his book on prayer. There are so many options. Matthew 6, Ephesians 1, Tim Keller, Desiring God. Over and over again, we are called to renew ourselves, and it's actually very simple. The only thing we have to do is pray. But we don't want just self-renewal. We also want church renewal too. And so on the back table, I put a sheet that you're welcome to put up that has like several different categories that you can pray for our church as a body, as a group. Okay, I pray for myself. I pray for my family. That's easy. What do I pray for the church? There's a sheet right back there at the next step table that you can pick up and take home for free, put it on your fridge and pray those things for our church. And what will happen? You'll see renewal. 
Remember, repent, renew, wake up, pray, 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 pray all the time, pray with other people, pray before your meals, not because it's a quaint, antiquated tradition, but because you have a regular rhythm throughout your day that you want to incorporate God into. And so that's a great time. If you're going to eat, bow your head and pray. That's not illegal. You can still do that. Even in the schools, you can bow your head like this and be quiet for a minute. Pray. Before meals, before bed, before road trips, before the game, before the day, in the car, before you go, at the park, on the bench, in the coffee shop, at the end of the conversation, pray. Wherever you're at, pray. End your conversation, start your day, fill up your cup, pray. Problem is when we get too comfortable, run our way to destruction. The solution is to wake up. And the application is to remember, repent, and renew. Here's one more challenge for you. It's this. You could go to Orlando. You fly south, you get on a plane. But how about this? Instead of Orlando, how about Haiti? Just a little bit further, beyond the tip of the peninsula of Florida, is another place... It doesn't have perfect streets and has a lot of crime. Maybe not everyone's going to smile when they greet you, but even there, Jesus wins. How about Haiti instead of Florida? Father, we thank you and praise you for you're a good and gracious God and everything you do is right and true and just. God, I ask that today as we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to repent, remember, and renew. And God, cause us to awake. In Jesus' name, amen.